one of and probably my all-time favorite secular thinker is a gentleman named Thomas Sowell, an utterly brilliant man who speaks and has incredibly choice gem quotes in the area of politics and economics. Uh, Professor Sowell was a professor at a variety of colleges, uh, Cornell. He uh, taught at the Heritage Foundation at Stanford. I remember when I worked for Boeing Deep in the Space Group, one of my uh, secular co-workers at the time, speaking of Thomas Sowell, said that uh, he would elect him philosophy king for life. Uh, I probably wouldn't argue, again, in those domains. And one of my favorite stories of Professor Sowell was he was teaching an economics class at Stanford, and he asked a question, and a, a young lady began to answer the question. She said, well, I, I feel, and she kind of paused a little bit, and Professor Sowell, uh, Sowell graciously uh, interrupted her and said, uh, said, with all due respect, I don't care about your feelings. This is economics, okay? We deal with black and white, we deal with numbers. And it's an interesting story because there's certainly a kernel of truth there. And even when we think of Scripture, God leads with our mind. God has given us the revelation of his will. He's giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness in the form of written communication that we are to process with our minds, that we are to be renewed, to have our minds metamorphosized day by day, renewed and transformed more into the image of God, more in line with the mind of Christ. And at the same time, though, we do realize that our feelings do count. Feelings are part of it. They, to be sure, take a back seat in the counsel of God. And all this to say, it's quite fascinating because in our passage this morning, God focuses on the feelings, not the necessarily teaching per se. These are teachings about feelings. In other words, what we have here is the heart of a shepherd. In chapter 1 and a little bit in chapter 2, God tells us in 1 Thessalonians, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. God tells us uh, prior to verse 17 of chapter 2 what a shepherd is, what a shepherd says, and what a shepherd does. Here in chapter 2 verse 17 through the end of chapter 3, God tells us what a godly biblical shepherd feels. It's interesting, in the original autographs, the original writings of the New Testament, there weren't chapter divisions or even verse numbers. These were added later. And in some ways, one might think that this was perhaps not the best chapter division because from chapter 2, verse 17, through the end of chapter, what we have is chapter 3, verse 13, is really all one section. So perhaps the chapter division should have taken place here. And at the same time, just on a related side note, perhaps the people that did put the chapter divisions in, they like to be able to end chapter 2 with a reference to the coming of Christ, and then also chapter 3 with a reference to the coming of Christ. But be that as it may, beloved, listen as I read the word of God. Our passage this morning is chapter 2, 17 through 3, verse 5. But I will read all the way to the end of chapter 3 because this is a contained this is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 17. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And therefore, 
When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. And for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of God read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. This is a snapshot, a penetrating gaze into the heart of Paul, into the heart of a godly shepherd. In chapter 1 especially, and even in the earlier part of chapter 2, Paul emphasized the consistency of the message that he taught and the integrity of the life that he lived. We understand that shepherds are to be committed first and foremost to the word of God and necessarily must also be committed to the people of God. We know that our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, loved his sheep, loves his sheep. Paul loves his people. And what we have here in our passage, beloved, we have two themes that are knit together, two strands of teaching that go through this entire section here, but especially verses 17 through 20 in chapter 2, and then verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3, namely the heart of the shepherd and the faith of the sheep. The heart of the shepherd and the faith of the sheep. Again, thinking of Jesus as our example, the great burden of Jesus' heart was for the salvation of his people. And so what we have here is we have a view in our passage here Uh, reminiscent of the heart of the great shepherd, we have a view into the heartbeat of gospel ministry, into pastoral ministry. And whether you are a sheep or a shepherd, and if you're a believer, we are all sheep. Whether Whether as we all are sheep or if you happen to be a shepherd, we share the spiritual experience of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the Thessalonian believers because we share their Savior. So, beloved, let's look at this first theme that we have here at the end of chapter 2, the heart of the shepherd. And the situation here is Paul is having to continue his apologia, his defense against false accusations that had come from the enemies of the gospel. He had immediately referenced the enemies of the gospel back in verses 14 through 16. 
We also read of them in Acts chapter 15 when Luke gives us the historical background. Uh, Whereas Paul earlier in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 2 had defended the false accusations against the, the actions of the shepherds, here he is defending against the false accusations about the absence of the shepherds. Apparently, the enemies of the gospel were telling the Thessalonian believers, yeah, Paul and Silas and Timothy, those men who brought this strange new teaching about Jesus, they don't care about you. They've abandoned you. They've forgotten about you. Where are they now? They're not here. And so Paul has to give a biblical defense for the gospel and for the cause of Christ. And he does it with a great view of his heart. And he begins, look at the beginning of verse 17, with an emphatic and stark contrast. He says, but we ourselves. Again, an emphatic, stark contrast against the enemies of the gospel in verses 14 through 16. That oppressing majority, they were persecuting the saints. And what he does is he talks about the depth of affection that he has for these believers. This is the depth of affection that any godly shepherd would have for his sheep and he says but we ourselves brethren we are brothers and sisters he reminds them you and I are reminded when we read this that we didn't become members of a society at Santan Bible Church we didn't join a club we have been adopted into the family of God and as such there is no place for pride or one-upsmanship in the family of God the ground is flat He says, but we ourselves, brethren, having been bereft of you. Now, it's interesting. I don't know about you. Maybe you do, but I don't use the word bereft in my normal dialogue, in my normal affairs of life. And what exactly is he saying here? He doesn't say having been gone from you. He says having been bereft from you. Literally, we could say having been torn away from you. And actually, I'll tell you the Greek word here, and I won't pronounce it the whole way. I'm just going to pronounce it in in some different syllables, and you'll understand why I'm doing it. The Greek word here is ap orphan idso. Ap orphan idso. What he's saying is having been orphaned from you. Now, in our English vernacular, we normally think of orphan, rightly so, as children that don't have a mother or father. They have no parent. In Greek parlance, this word was also would be used to describe not just the children that didn't have a mother and father, but parents whose children have been torn away from them. And that is precisely what Paul is talking about here. He's continuing the imagery that he had given earlier where he said, you may remember, you know what manner of men we prove to be among you. Like a nursing mother who loves her child or a loving father. So what he's doing here is he's continuing that imagery, say, that we are like parents whose children have been stripped away from them by this forced separation. And beloved, A dear friend, uh, after the most sacred bond in human affairs between husband and wife, there is no bond greater than the bond between a parent and child. And that's why Paul, even though he has been taken away in a way that he wouldn't want, he is hopeful to see them again. He says, we having been orphaned from you for a short while, that expresses his hopeful heart that he will be reunited with his beloved sheep, with his beloved Thessalonians brothers and sisters for a short while in person, not in spirit. Literally, in person, not in heart. 
What he's saying here is, yes, we have been out of sight. You are out of sight of us, but beloved believers, you are not out of mind and you are not out of heart. Our hearts never let, left you. You were not abandoned. You have not been forgiven is what comes from Apostle Paul here. And then he just expands on it. He pours just incredible, intense depth of affection and emotion at the end of verse 17. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. And very strange, even in the Greek grammar, it's almost impossible English. Literally, it would be, we could, he's saying, all the more eagerly, we made every effort, your face to see with great longing. And the word desire here, the word desire, it's the Greek word epithumeo, and that is normally translated as lust. Throughout the New Testament, the vast majority of the way, the context in which that word is used, it's rightly translated as lust. The situation where there is a desire, perhaps a sinful desire, which by definition is lust, or even a good or noble desire that becomes a controlling desire, where we would sin to get it or sin to keep onto it, and so even a good desire, if it is idolized, becomes a lust. But it's, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where this word is used in a good sense, in a very, very good sense, to describe the passionate zeal that the shepherd Paul has for his people. John Chrysostom, the 4th century expository preacher, said this of this display, this eruption of affection that Paul has for his people. Chrysostom said, quote, Of what fiery warmth is this? Never could either mother or father, yea, even if they met together and commingled their love, could have shown their own affection to be equal to that of Paul, end quote, end quote. And then he continues, look at verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. In fact, I, Paul, myself, more than once. He breaks away. The normal way he's been writing from the beginning is there's this plural of Paul and Silas and Timothy. We here, along with chapter 3, verse 5, it kind of brackets our section here. Paul moves from the plurality to the singularity. And at the high level, what he's saying here, what's clearly coming forth, is this is not a matter of superficial concern. To the heart of the shepherd, of Paul, this is a matter of pressing need, of pressing need. He is not looking for an out, he's looking for an in. Uh, just kind of a side note, for me personally, I've never understood in the context of ministry and pastoring, I've never understood sabbaticals. I don't get that. You need a break from what? From the people? From, from studying the word of God, uh, I'll probably rein myself back in. I won't go beyond that. Paul, Paul wants to be with him. He doesn't need time off. He wants back in with them because he loves them. And, beloved, even when we think we just have a little snippet of the intensity of this language and the depth of the affection, remember, it's only been about eight to ten months since Paul, Silas, and Timothy met any of these Thessalonian believers, new convicts, for the very first time. How could they have, and they were taken away some months before, so how could there be such incredible affection for people that you recently met and you haven't even been with for the last several weeks? Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of the ties of love and brotherhood that were founded, forged, and fixed in the gospel. 
This is the affection that began in eternity past in the divine triune God that now walk through time in the context, in the family of God, in the body of Christ. And let me say this, let me give kind of a directed application, kind of getting in the kitchen. We can't say we long for Jesus if we forsake our assembling together. And I apologize, I just finished Hebrews, so I still have Hebrews on my brain. But the point being is, if we don't long for his children, we can't truly say to ourselves, at least, that we long for him. The one, there's a one and sameness to this dynamic. And taking a quote from a book from the greatest decade, that's not God speaking, that's Clay speaking, of the 80s. The book is Revitalizing the 20th Century Church. Here's the quote from that, 80th, from that uh, 80s book. The number one problem facing pastors today is they don't know how to get along with people, end quote. I mean, how do, how do we even compute that? If there's any truth to that statement, if there's any veracity to that statement, something is desperately wrong. And don't get me wrong. I know my own heart. I know I'm, I'm, a, I'm very difficult to get along with. And thank you so much for your great patience towards me because I understand I need that. But the heart of the sheep is he loves, excuse me, the heart of the shepherd is he loves his sheep. And beloved, the gospel message, note this, the gospel message in Paul's heart didn't tighten him up it stretched him out. The Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting Christians, also became Paul, the unique apostle to the Gentiles. And even as we see Paul growing and maturing in his walk, his heart is expanding with more and more love for God and Christ, first and foremost, and love for the sheep. And so should it be with us. We carry the burdens for the ones we love, both sheep and Shepherd. So that's the depth of affection. But he moves now, interesting, very strong pivot. He moves from the depth of affection to the gravity of danger. Look at the rest of verse 18. And yet Satan thwarted us. Satan, the deceiver, the devil, the dragon, the serpent of old, the evil one, the tempter. Satan is his Hebrew name meaning accuser. Uh, C.S. Lewis had this good, sound wisdom statement about Satan. He said, there are two mistakes you can make with Satan, to either think too much of him or to think too little of him. And that's why we understand from the counsel of the word of God that Satan is the father of lies. He tempts, harasses, and accuses. He imitates. He doesn't come as a devil with a pitchfork and a horns he comes disguised as an angel of light and he deceives and he devours that's why luther in his great hymn a mighty fortress is our god has this choice stanza for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal but luther didn't stop there were not the right man on our side. Ask who that may be, Lord Jesus, Lord of Sabbath, it is he. We're not the right man on our side, beloved. We would shrink before this mighty enemy. And it is fascinating to note that when we think that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is made up 
vast majority Gentiles. These two letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, there's not one direct quote from the Old Testament. And in these two letters that he wrote without the direct quote of the Old Testament to Gentile congregation, he uses the Hebrew name Satan without any explanation. And what are we to make of that? I think clearly Paul included Satan as part of his foundational preaching at the birth of the church. And if we think about it, how contrary that is to modern methods. What he says here <clears throat> is Satan thwarted us. That's a military term giving the idea of cutting off the enemy by maybe destroying the road that an enemy would that an enemy force would come towards you on what Paul is saying here is this is intense spiritual warfare the danger is real and the danger is grave that's the gravity of the danger and beloved that means that we need to understand that wherever Christ builds his church he is building his church on enemy occupied territory and we're not alarmed when Satan hinders our work. Now, we're not like the Apostle Paul. We're, we didn't have a personal appearance of Christ. We are not apostles. We're not personally sent messengers from him. We're not receiving direct revelation from God to write down as Paul was. So we wouldn't necessarily have the same insight as Paul did as to specific thwarting and hindering that the enemy might do. But, beloved, anytime there's, whether it's direct from demons, whether it's direct from demonic influence, or who knows, whatever it might look like, we are not alarmed when Satan hinders our work because it's proof that we're on God's side doing God's work. Charles Spurgeon, <clears throat> I'm going to read a, kind of an extended quote here because it is choice. This is what Spurgeon said about this dynamic. Since the first hour in which goodness came into conflict with evil, it has never ceased to be true in spiritual experience that Satan hinders us. From all points of the compass, all along the line of battle, in the vanguard and in the rear, at the dawn of the day and in the midnight hour, Satan hinders us. If we toil in the field, he seeks to break the plowshare. If we build the wall, he labors to cast down the stones. If we serve God in suffering or in conflict, everywhere Satan hinders us. He hinders us when we first come to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon continued and said, You may be con uh, congratulating yourself, saying, I've walked consistently. No man can challenge my integrity. Beware of boasting, for your virtue will yet be tried. Satan will direct his enemies against that very virtue for which, perhaps, you've been most famous. If you've been a firm believer, <clears throat> your faith will be attacked. The birds will peck at your ripest fruit, and the wild boar will dash his tusks at your choicest vines. There was <clears throat> never a revival of religion without a revival of his opposition. He finishes, what then? And here's the point. We're not alarmed because Satan hinders us. For it's proof we're on the Lord's side and doing the Lord's work. And in his strength, we shall with we shall win the victory and triumph over our adversary, end quote. And beloved, that's why God, through Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, tells us that we must, on a regular basis, take up the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand firm even in the day of evil. So, 
the depth of affection, the gravity of danger. Finally, Paul moves to the height of joy in the last two verses. In verse 19, he gets two rhetorical questions, questions that don't need an answer, questions that make a point. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Uh, this is uh, the first of the two eschatological epistles that he wrote to the Thessalonians. Uh, the, book of first, the books of First and Second Thessalonians have by far the most frequent reference to the coming of the Lord, with only Second Peter being close to it. And we'll speak more on that as we continue through this epistle. There's much more to say. But back on the main context here, Paul can't find words that are too strong to express the way he feels about this church. Only Philippi comes close to being addressed with some level of intensity of affection. And he talks about hope and joy and crown. Hope is the absolute confidence of the sure future that you and I have in the Lord. Joy is less, and I'm kind of hearkening back to my very opening story, joy is less about how we feel and more about what we do, namely rejoice. Count it all joy, beloved brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith, what? Produces endurance, as James says. And crown. This is not the royal crown. This is not the diadem crown of a king. This is a Stephanos crown, which was the wreath of victory for an athlete at the games. Uh, this is not a crown of royalty. This is a crown of victory. And what Paul is saying is not only is he anticipating the great victory that awaits him when he appears before Christ, he's using present tense. He's telling his beloved sheep that even though he's not with them right now, you are right now my crown of exaltation, literally my crown of boasting, crown of boasting. He's picking up the thread that began even all the way back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet, Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And we could say this way, joy is hope expressed inwardly. Boasting is hope expressed outwardly. And then finally in verse 20, he caps it off, for you are our glory and joy. That's the final snapshot of the heart of the shepherd. Outwardly and inwardly, the Thessalonian believers crown Paul's ministry. Not what they will be for him in the future, but what they are for him even now. And one last thought on this whole idea of boasting in the Lord. You may remember, or maybe this is the first time you're aware of this, Paul told the Galatian church in Galatians 6 verse 14 that he would not boast in anything except the cross of Christ. So we can ask the question, how does that jive with Paul boasting here of the Thessalonian believers? 
And not only does he boast of the mature church made up of the Thessalonian believers, even in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the immature church in Corinth, he also wrote of them that he boasts of them. But how can Paul boast of these human beings when he has told us in Galatians he will boast of nothing except the cross of Christ? What is the dynamic here? Beloved, again, this is another outworking of the ties of love and brotherhood that were founded, forged, and fixed in the gospel, in the body of Christ. This is, again, the affection that began in eternity that walks through time, even in us right here, right now, in our frailty, in our progress, in our pursuit of God, that same love that the Father had for the Son in eternity past with the Holy Spirit in there as well as being manifested in our very midst. So that is the heart of the shepherd. The second theme that is knit together through this entire section, but we'll focus on in the next five verses, is the faith of the sheep. And actually, we see the word faith appear five times in the rest of chapter 3, verse 2, verse 5, 6, 7, and verse 10. And the purpose and goal of the godly shepherd is the faith of the sheep, the faith of the sheep to be strengthened, established, made firm, stabilized, for the sheep to be encouraged, exhorted, comforted in their faith, in the truth, in the gospel. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. Therefore, Paul writes, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Timothy, there was no man closer to Paul in ministry, in his ministries than Timothy. Timothy was like-minded and like-hearted with Paul. Timothy was a gifted and qualified representative who was sent by Paul and Silas, and I'll comment on that dynamic in a moment. Timothy was sent on a fact-finding and nurturing mission. Now, what's going on here is, you may remember, after Paul and Silas and Timothy were sent away from Thessalonica, they went to Berea, and then the enemies of the gospel came, stirred up more trouble. Paul left and went to Athens. Silas and Timothy later came and joined him in Athens, and then they ended up in Corinth, and Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica on this fact-finding, nurturing mission, and shortly after that, he sent Silas back to Philippi. So what Paul is really saying here is he's describing this is a costly sacrifice. Paul is willing to be abandoned alone in Athens, which is what took place because of his love and affection for the Thessalonian believers. And this is so radically different than if we go back again to the, those accusers. We go back to the religious leaders of the day, the snake oil salesmen that were going around purveying their man-made religious idols. Unlike them, Paul and Silas and Timothy was not in the ministry for self. They were in it for the sheep, even to the point of Paul willing to be abandoned alone in Athens. Beloved, the godly shepherd has a deep-seated pastoral concern, a passionate zeal for spiritual well-being, the spiritual shalom of the flock of God in their midst. And sometimes a burden must be carried by one, which is what is here the case with Paul. And even though Paul was alone in Athens, he wasn't really alone, was he? 
Any man or woman in Christ is never truly alone because he is your Lord. He is your Savior. He is your great shepherd who is holding your hand in my hand. Now, we can, as young Timothy is sent, we can imagine the reaction of the Thessalonians. They say, okay, you know, I get it, Paul, for whatever reason, Paul can't come back, but Timothy? I mean, how about Silas? Silas is the older man. He's the more mature man. And how does Paul respond to that? Well, understand this. You, you can know precisely how people think of you by how they describe you. And look at how Paul describes Timothy. Paul does not say, I'm sending you Timothy, my lackey. I'm not sending you Timothy, my second fiddle, Timothy, my junior. He says, I'm sending you Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Fellow worker, synergos, synergy we get from that. Paul has used this word before, this co-worker, to describe Epaphroditus, Titus and Philemon, normally talking about, and he also does it with Timothy, all of whom were co-workers with Paul. Here, he kicks it up a notch. He's not just saying, Timothy is my co-worker. Timothy is God's co-worker. Would there be a higher level of commendation that Paul could give? Paul elsewhere calls Timothy my true child in the faith, my son in the Lord. He speaks of him as brother, co-worker, fellow servant, and fellow slave. Because the dynamic is this. Paul couldn't go. And you can't delegate love. You can't delegate compassion. You can't delegate concern. So Paul sends young Timothy. For what reason? Look at verse 2 again in the middle. To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, to stabilize you and to comfort you. And this strengthening and encouraging, we've seen already earlier in the ministry, as we would go to Acts chapter 14, earlier on the first missionary journey, after the Acts 14, verses 21 and 22, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, watch this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then, In Acts 15, verse 32, Judas and Silas, not the bad Judas, the good Judas, Judas and Silas also encourage and strengthen the brethren with a lengthy message, with a lengthy message, one of my favorite verses as a preacher. But back here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. Disturbed. This was a word that literally meant, would, would uh, describe the wagging tail of a dog, which is, that's a beautiful, that's a sweet, a, oh, a dog's tail wagging. But it meant to be agitated, to be shaken and disturbed. And so what Paul is saying here is rather than being agitated and shaken and taken back and forth by these afflictions, I want you to be strengthened, stabilized, made firm, and even encouraged in the Lord to strengthen you. This is a sense of stability and iron-heartedness. In fact, the word strengthen in Luke, it's used in a couple different places that kind of help us understand Uh, more of the heart of Paul in terms of what he wants to see in the faith of the Thessalonian believers. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus himself 
when he was telling Peter, when he was giving Peter encouragement that even though in Peter's great betrayal that Christ would bring him back again and he would allow that Peter would be tempted by Satan, but Jesus Christ, the sovereign God-man, would not allow Peter to be sifted like wheat by Satan. And what he said, what Jesus told Peter was, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you've once turned again, may strengthen your brothers. That same word. And then even previously, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there, the one I just read in Jesus' words of encouragement to Peter, that was part of his prayer on Peter's behalf. But we also read Luke telling us that Jesus himself, for himself, when he was approaching Jerusalem, he tells us that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He strengthened his faith to go to Jerusalem. So whereas we see here in Thessalonians that we are strengthened by one another, the sheep are strengthened by the shepherd, Peter would be strengthened by the prayers of Jesus to be able to minister to other believers, but Jesus in his humanity strengthened his faith resolutely to go to the suffering that God had for him. And so, beloved, you and I, we must continually press on to be strengthened and encouraged in our faith. And whereas Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, you and I resolutely fix our eyes on Christ. We set our gaze towards the glories of heaven that await us, even through the valley of the shadow of death, even through the trials and the tribulations. And specifically here in the context where does Paul find comfort? Where does he find stability? In the sovereignty of God. You see, these afflictions that he speaks of here, the tribulations that he spoke of back in chapter 1, verse 6, they're not by chance. They're not by bad luck or even some kind of uncontrollable conspiracy. Rather, they come by unchangeable divine appointment. Look at the rest of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We have been appointed by God for this. We had Paul open up with Satan back in chapter 2, verse 18. Well, he'll appear again as the tempter in verse 4. But what we have here is the sinister power of darkness. Here meets face to face the sovereign power of deity. Beloved, dear friend, Satan is on a leash. Luther was right when he said he's God's devil. Satan thwarts. Satan hinders. God destines. God appoints. This is predestination language used by Paul as he did back in chapter 1, verse 4. And he continues here in verse 4, here in chapter 3, <laughs> where he says, for, F-O-R, Indeed, when, you were, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Beloved, the point here is before the tribulations, afflictions, and persecution and suffering were realized in the lives of the new Thessalonian converts, they were a recurring presence in the preaching of Paul. He didn't preach Jesus as a cure to all your problems. He preached Jesus as a pathway to new problems. 
but new problems through which he will see you to the future glory. He preached eternal peace and he preached temporal trouble. Both are true. We must understand, dear friend, the bad news before we will truly appreciate and understand the good news. That's why Paul, in a similar vein, when he was writing to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And we love that. We love the glory part. We love the joint heirs part. But there's an if part. There's a conditional statement that if we skip over, as I intentionally just did in the reading, we miss the boat. The conditional clause is if, indeed, we suffer with him. Beloved, that is the normal state of Christianity. See, for us in 21st century America, Gilbert, Arizona, we need to understand Christians who don't experience persecution or afflictions like we don't experience persecution and afflictions. We are the exception, not the rule. Back in our text in verse 5, as we finish up, he continues, For this reason, and this is where he again breaks away from the plurality to the singularity. For this reason, when I myself could endure it no longer, I myself also sent to find out about your faith. Sometimes, let, let me ask the question, is leadership a plurality or is it a singularity? Yes, it's both. It's a both and. The normal, dominant way is a plurality, but sometimes it is a singularity. As I said before, sometimes a burden must be bared by one. And what he does here is he wraps up where he opened up in chapter 1 is even though Paul is hopeful towards the good work of Christ in their lives, in their behavior, in their thinking, in their stability, he is asking the question, did your faith survive the time of testing? And then he finishes verse 5, for fear that the tempter, again hearkening to Satan, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. That's Paul's concern as a shepherd. It's around the faith of the sheep. And that's why Paul, for example, when he had a similar statement to the church in Philippi, what did he do to strengthen himself towards the appropriate end? Philippians 2.16, Paul said, I'm holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain, I did not toil in vain. You see, Paul finds comfort and stability in the sovereignty of God. Beloved, the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty are not barbs that are used to pierce between the ribs of human beings. The sovereignty of God is like a beacon of hope shining in the darkness. I told this story once several years ago here of a battleship that was at sea in deep fog as the night fell. And shortly after dark, the lookout reported to the captain of the battleship a light bearing on starboard bow. The captain replied, is it steady or is it moving astern? The lookout replied, it's steady, captain, which meant it was on a dangerous collision course. So the captain had the signal man reach out to the other ship, heading for a collision, turned 15 degrees north. The reply came back, heading for collision, turn 15 degrees south. The captain replied back, no, turn 15 degrees north. Again, the reply came back, turn 15 degrees south. 
The captain responded, I'm a U.S. Naval captain. This is an Iowa-class battleship. Turn 15 degrees north. The reply came back, I'm a C-class, second, I'm a, a, a uh, what am I? <laughs> Seaman second class. This is a lighthouse. Suggest you turn 15 degrees south. Beloved, the point is this. Sometimes we mistake the light. This is God's sovereignty in the darkness, in the fog. And sometimes we want, to, we want the light to turn, but the light says to us, no, you must turn. You must yield to the sovereignty of God, to the good plan of God, to the promise God gives in Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's why Paul wrote, again, to the church in Philippi 4.11, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Even the mighty apostle Paul learned. He didn't come fully loaded. Some upgrades are necessary. In the life of Paul, upgrades were necessary. On this side of glory, upgrades in your life and my life are necessary. And by the way, even in the context of Romans 8.28, this whole dynamic at the macro level is an incredibly powerful illustration of just that dynamic, that God causes all things to work together for your good. Sorrowful things, even sinful things, even satanic things. Consider this. Had not Satan thwarted Paul's return to the church in Thessalonica, from a human level, these two letters would not have been written. And you and I would have been deprived of their treasure. Beloved, the sovereignty of God is a beacon of light in the thick darkness and fog of uncertainty in life. And I'll finish our time here this morning in the context of bearing the burden of one another together in the body of Christ and the family of God. The story is told of a visitor to China who saw that many children were carrying around smaller children on their backs even while playing. And the well-meaning traveler sympathetically said to one of the children, a little guy, they said, it's too bad you have to carry such a heavy burden. And the visitor was challenged and encouraged by the reply he received from the young boy. He said, he's not a burden, he's my brother. Beloved, as you and I fulfill the law of Christ and bear one another's burdens, may we do it with hearts that say, he's not a burden, she's not a burden, he's my brother, she's my sister. That's the heart of the shepherd, and that's the faith of the sheep at work. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We praise you for your infinite sovereign wisdom, Lord, to even think that what we experience in our body life, in our ministry, in the love we have for one another, in our fellowship on the golf course, in a coffee shop, in our rolling up our sleeves and ministering in the dirt and grime of even your local church, all of this finds its origin back in eternity past, in the, the promise from you, God the Father, to you, God the Son. And we praise you and thank you for how it works out in us right here, right now. Lord, help us to excel yet more in all these things. Be glorified. May your children rejoice. May all of us rejoice, whatever lot, me, lot we may have at one point or another. And may any 
whose paths we come across, help us to be bold with the good news that there is a way of escape. There is forgiveness. If any man or woman, young or old, would turn to you and embrace you and run to you as Savior and ask for forgiveness and place their faith alone in you alone and the finished work, Lord Jesus, you did at Calvary. It's for your glory and for your honor and for our joy and for our witness to this lost and dying world that we pray and sing. Amen.